What is baptism? I already said that the word baptize means to immerse. But it's used in a lot of different ways. It was used for bathing in the, in the time of Jesus. Jesus calls his death on the cross a baptism. Paul calls the passing of the Israelites through the Red Sea in the story in Exodus their baptism. It's an interesting word. It's used in many ways in the New Testament. Now, for some today, baptism is an outward profession of an inward faith. You heard that in the children's lesson this morning. It's a common way of understanding it today. Understood in this way, baptism is a way of testifying to a personal commitment we've made to Jesus. For others, baptism is a right by which we are protected from judgment. Some have argued, for instance, in fact, John Wesley argued this himself, that baptism removes the stain of original sin making a child innocent before God despite having been born in a fallen state. It's a long-time teaching of the church. For some, baptism is a sign of the new covenant of Jesus, just as circumcision was a sign of the old covenant of Sinai. Understood in this way, by submitting to baptism, adult converts enter into a covenantal relationship with Jesus, mediated to us by Jesus, And children are brought into the covenant community by baptism, much as Israelite children were brought into the covenant community of Israel by circumcision on the eighth day. What is baptism? It's actually a difficult conversation to have outside of the context of Scripture. Sometimes when commemorations or rituals are passed down from one generation to another, future generations retain the behavior without the context out of which those behaviors were born. And this then requires us to figure out why we do these things, and we tend to do that when we don't understand why we started doing them. We tend to think of them dogmatically, like having to do with some kind of doctrine, or philosophically, maybe there's some like meaning we're trying to pass on, uh, but we have to find some way to justify their use, sometimes foreign to their origins. This past August, if you were with us when we worshiped with the Presbyterian Church in a sermon entitled Sabbath Mercy, I shared a quotation from Canadian author Donald Kingsbury. He said this, Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Baptism is one such tradition. Baptism is a solution to a problem that we seem to have forgotten in the church today. And if you ask, what is the problem? Well, the problem is technically idolatry. Baptism is a correction to idolatry, but it's going to take us some time today to explain what that means. We all know, if we were raised in the church or tutored in the church or discipled in the church, that all Christians should be baptized. And all Christians should invite others to be baptized. Well, how do we know these things? Well, these responsibilities seem clear enough in a command of Jesus to his disciples not long before he ascended into the heavens. I've already referenced it this morning. The Gospel of Matthew recounted the scene as follows. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. My favorite line in the Gospel, but some doubted. No further comment, right? 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when Jesus said this to his disciples, what was he telling them to do? Earlier in the gospel, the prophet John the Baptist had been encouraging people to enter into the waters of the Jordan River and immerse themselves in those waters as a sign of repentance, of turning from their sinfulness and returning to faithfulness to God. Is that what Jesus meant? That we're to call folks to repentance and invite them into the waters as a sign of their commitment to return to faithfulness to God? Is that what he meant to say? Or is the baptism of Jesus different than that of John? Is the baptism of Jesus a sign of entering into a new agreement, a new covenant with God enacted through the atoning death of Jesus? Was Jesus asking his disciples to establish a new community and to begin to populate that new kingdom with converts from the world who change their loyalties from the kingdoms of the earth to the kingdom of God? If that's what it is and that's what he meant, baptism would then be kind of a naturalization process by which people officially become citizens of the kingdom of God. Understood in that way, baptism is a swearing-in ceremony in which the baptismal candidate makes oaths of loyalty to God and the community makes oaths of loyalty to their new citizen. Is that what Jesus meant to say? Establish a new kingdom with new citizens? Or is baptism something else entirely? Is baptism a ritual by which we recognize that our past sins are forgiven and the blood of Jesus now atones for all our wickedness and fallenness, cleansing us, so that we can be made innocent by the blood of Jesus in order to enter into the presence of God without fear. Is this what Jesus was commanding his disciples to do, to cleanse people of their sins so they could be clean before God and declared innocent in Jesus? To my reading of the scriptures, there's something right in each of these, and yet each in its own way suffers from decontextualization from a failure to recognize how baptism actually occurs, actually works in the scriptures. Is baptism an outward sign of an inward commitment? Yeah, yeah, of course. But that's not all. Is baptism a consequence of repentance? Yes. But to say that is not really to say enough. Is baptism an act by which we transfer our loyalty from the kingdoms of the earth to the kingdom of God? Yes, but to say that is not really to fully understand Jesus' intention. Is there a cleansing? Is there a transformation that occurs in the moment of baptism that's part of moving a person from slavery to sin and death to freedom in Christ? Yes, but it's not a mystical, otherworldly, spiritual transformation. It's far more concrete than that. Well, then what is baptism? Here's the definition I suggest to you. Baptism is full immersion in a unique and uniquely understood history. Baptism is full immersion in a unique and uniquely understood history, the history of the people of Israel, as that history has been filled full by the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. 
Baptism is essentially an outward sign that we are embracing a new story as the only story. When Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples baptizing them, those were not two commands. They were one command. To make a disciple is to baptize a person, to immerse them. Now, Jesus was clearly less concerned with the outward ritual that has perplexed the church forever. Do you sprinkle? Do you pour? Do you dunk? Does it have to be in the Jordan River? Can it be done someplace else? Can it be done in Rome? The church debated this forever. Jesus never said anything about it. The ritual itself is meaningless. It's just a sign. Jesus was concerned with the concrete act of baptizing a person, which he explained as making a disciple. Now, if that sounds complicated, I think it's simplified by the passage from 1 Samuel that we're considering today. Samuel began, this is 1 Samuel chapter 12. He began by asking the people, this is his farewell speech to them, if he himself had evidenced in his life his full immersion in the scriptural history of Israel. He's more or less asking them in uh, New Testament language, have I been baptized? Is there evidence of my baptism? That's what he's asking them. So he began his address to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, as follows. Samuel said to all Israel, I've listened to you and all that you have said to me and have set a king over you. See, it is the king who leads you now. I'm old and gray, but my sons are with you. I've led you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. These are all from the law of Moses. He's, immer he's asking them, have I been immersed in this story? Am I baptized? They said, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from the hand of anyone. He said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Samuel asked the people to affirm his baptism into the name of God. By laying out the stipulations of the covenant of Sinai with respect to leadership, that's what he just did in Israel. Samuel was asking the people, have I been baptized? Have I evidenced my full immersion in the teachings of God by my behavior? Have I demonstrated my full immersion in the story handed down by our ancestors and my full devotion to it by the way I have led you these many years? If not, I will repent. That's what he says. And the people said, yes, we can testify. You have been baptized. Having settled that question then, Samuel proceeds, and this may not look like a baptism, but he is going to baptize the people. He doesn't do it with water, he does it with words. But the water is just a sign of the words. It's baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Their teachings, their story. So Samuel proceeds to baptize them into the same story in which he had been baptized, in which he had been immersed. So he recounts their history. This is 1 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of the land of Egypt. 
Now therefore take your stand, so that I may enter into judgment with you before the Lord, and I will declare to you all the saving deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your ancestors. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your ancestors cried to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought forth your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of King Jabin of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Astartes, but now rescue us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak, Jerubbaal, I believe is Gideon, though I should have looked that up, and Barak and Jephthah and Samson, and rescued you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. But when you saw that King Nahash of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, though the Lord your God was your king. See, here is the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and heed his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not heed the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore take your stand and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord. So this is near Passover, apparently. I'll call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that the wickedness that you have done in the sight of the Lord is great in demanding a king for yourselves. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. After having affirmed his own baptism, Samuel then proceeded to question their baptism. They had all been circumcised. They were all members of the people of Israel, but were they? Were they really immersed in God's story? That's his question. So he immersed them again in the story that was handed down to them through the scriptures. And he suggested that their request for a king had demonstrated that though they knew the story, they had not become disciples of it. They had not been baptized into it. They had simply heard it. How did Samuel know? Well, they asked for a king in order to be like the other nations. That's not someone who's listening only to the story of God. They're listening to other stories. Their loyalty was not to the unique history of Israel and the interpretation of that history given to them by God through his prophets. Their loyalty was still to the other kingdoms of the earth. They knew Israel's story, but they were not immersed in it. They were immersed in other stories and other interpretations. We all choose the voices we listen to. In fact, the very story of Israel's history that Samuel shared demonstrated that this failure to be baptized into the name of the God of Israel had been a recurrent feature in Israel's history. And as a sign of Samuel's correctness in this judgment, in case they disagreed with his interpretation, God sent them a storm to baptize them in fear. Then just as would later happen in response to the ministry of John the Baptist, the people repented of their failure to be baptized into the name of the God of Israel. Their failure to live into and out of the unique history and the unique interpretations of history and life provided to them by the prophets of their people. So 1 Samuel continues. Now in verse 19, chapter 12, verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, 
Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of demanding a king for ourselves. For one moment, they were baptized into the story and they saw their sin. The unbaptized cannot see their sin. They can only justify it. But now they saw it. And Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after useless things that cannot profit or save, for they are useless. For the Lord will not cast away his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The response of the people and the teachings of Samuel in these verses are virtually the same as those described in Luke chapter 3 with respect to the ministry of John the Baptist and the command of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28. To be baptized is to be immersed in the unique history of the people of Israel as that history has found fulfillment in the person of Jesus. It is to change loyalties from the stories given to us by the other nations to the story delivered to us by God. To baptize someone is to make a disciple of them. When we come to faith in Jesus, we don't come to a set of beliefs about Jesus. We don't come to a set of ritual behaviors. When we come to faith in Jesus, we come to a people to a story that began long before any of us were born, before any life was ever created, the story began. And we come to a people living into and out of this story. Baptism is into a community, but it's not into a community here as so much as it is into a timeless community that has echoed throughout all of history of life on earth. When we come to faith in Jesus, we come to a people, a people who embrace a unique history, and more than that, a unique understanding of history, a unique way of life in history, and a unique commitment to live as citizens, not of the nations of the earth, but of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is not of this world. Just as Samuel baptized the people of Israel by immersing them in a story they were neither living into nor out of, so the writer of Hebrews has done the same for the Christian church. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews baptizes us into the story we swear allegiance to when we are baptized in water. And here is the story. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
By faith, Noah, warned by God about events yet as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith he received power of procreation even though he was too old, and Sarah herself was barren because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises. But from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able even to raise someone from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked blessings for the future on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions about his burial. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater worth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do so they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better, so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded, since we have been baptized by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is baptism. To be baptized into the name of the Father The Son and the Holy Spirit is to be immersed in this story, to embrace this history as our history, to reject other histories and other understandings of the world, to live out of and into this unique interpretation of history given to us by the prophets and apostles of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus. In short, we are to become his disciples and to invite others to become his disciples as well. Samuel accused Israel of knowing the history of Israel, but of failing to be baptized in it, failing to be disciples of God. John the Baptist and Jesus both evaluated their contemporaries in similar ways. And all three, Samuel, John the Baptist, and Jesus, called those who knew the story to be baptized into it fully. So why then was Jesus baptized? Well, it should make sense. Because Jesus immersed himself in that story too and lived in full obedience to the law of Moses. Jesus' baptism was a sign that he was not coming to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so like he asked his people to be baptized into this story in history, Jesus too entered the waters. If you have immersed your children, if we have immersed our children in this story and have called them to live into and out of it as the unique interpretation of history and the world given to us by God himself, then our children have been and are being baptized. If we ourselves are immersed in this story as the story that explains every story, then we too have been baptized. If we have not done this, either for ourselves or for our children, if we have immersed ourselves in other stories and them in other stories, then we and our children both remain unbaptized, however many times we have wet ourselves with the rituals of the church. May the words of Samuel echo through time to our ears again as a call to be made and to make disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name, in the history, in the story, in the word of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Samuel's words to Israel, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, 
if you still immerse yourself in the other stories and live by their teachings, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of his word. Amen.